Fanatsu is a podcast series that features discussions and interviews designed to help educate the Guam community, as well as the rest of the world, about the decolonization of the island and the possibilities should it become an independent nation. All right, you're listening to a special holiday episode of the Fanatsu podcast. Um, I call it special because, well, we were supposed to have a meeting tonight and um, that didn't turn out quite as planned. There's a, a solid uh, four of us, um, but what can you expect? Uh, we're in a post-Christmas days and um, uh, a few days away uh, from the time of this recording is, of course, New Year's. So obviously everyone's got their own things going on. Family is especially important at, th- at this time of year as it is every other time of the year. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, tonight's podcast is a little informal we were just talking about um uh ray ray still um is trying to conceptualize his role in the independence task force um shout out to tihu luhan of uh, the guam daily post for his uh, coverage of the podcast um it I, I think it was pretty fair it was a uh, he gave a, a pretty positive light to what we were doing and um, there's nothing contra- controversial, really, just highlighting um, uh, the uh, the guerrilla media uh, tactics of uh, what we're doing here and the grassroots approach that we're taking. So, yeah, w- uh, when I shared the post, one of one of the things I said was that, um, you know, we all have something to contribute like this, this podcast. This is just um, it's just a skill that I picked up along the way. I don't have any formal training. Sure, I have an undergraduate degree in communication. I was a journalist for a time, but, um, you know, this is just, it's just a skill. It's a, an informal skill and we all have something to contribute is, uh, the, the bigger message. So, you know, how can you contribute? And, um, that's one of the things that Ray is uh, grappling with. So you want to give us a little background on yourself and, uh, mm-hmm. your yeah. studies? Introducing myself. Yes. Uh, Hafadei, Gwawusu Ray Luhan. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Guam majoring in social work. And I am also in the media subcommittee for an independent Guahan. Uh, man, Manny, you have such a nice uh, speaking <laughs> voice, like, like a nice uh, journalist voice. But no, you know, like I've been interested in uh the efforts of decolonization for like a, f- a couple years now uh, still pretty you know it's not too not as long as a lot of the people who have been doing like great work on the island but my interests of course i've kind of um went off of that and i'm trying to be more proactive and i found that i connected well with the independence task force and now that i'm a member of the subcommittee uh, in the media subcommittee and seeing some of the projects that we've uh, that the committee's been putting out over the last few months I've been trying to find out, find uh, I guess a medium or kind of something that I can contribute personally that is specific to my skills and my knowledge and 
so no, we're just going through a few ideas, but <clears throat> definitely still trying to kind of hone in on one and just uh, kind of make it a series or something like that. Nice. Um, one of the things that uh, really struck me when uh, well, we formally met mm -hmm. was um, you you talked about uh, being in the social work program mm -hmm. and then also uh, having experience with um, the mental health facility here on, on Guam, right? Uh -huh. And that, that sort of brought me back to reading um, Fanon, Franz Fanon, of course, where he talks about the psychology of mm -hmm. the colonized. Yes, yes. And uh, it's really, it's interesting and it, it's disheartening to, mm -hmm. when, you, when you think about just how, um, how multi-pronged uh, colonization is, mm -hmm. like it, it touches every, every aspect of our lives, really. Mm -hmm. um, most people obviously don't think about these things, but um, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, your, your research and uh, maybe your experience uh, working mm -hmm. with uh, mental health issues? I'll say I'll say this and I think so um, yeah so a lot of the people that uh, I, I observed and work with at uh, the agency I'm interning at do live with some type of mental or behavioral issue and when learning more about like uh, their background and history a lot of that is a product of some type of neglect or abuse and I don't know I've come to the understanding that like the same with decolonization, it's just, it's a, it's a power, you know, like it's a power over someone else. And that could be parallel to like any type of abuse, whether it's like a community, systemic abuse, whether it's like an individual person who's abusing his girlfriend or vice versa, whatever. And some of the kids that I've seen in my agency and kind of getting more context to their situation, a lot of the their diagnoses their diagnoses are products of some type of abuse or neglect, mm -hmm. and and one of the beautiful things I love about uh, generalist social work is that it covers micro, meso, and macro level of social work. So from the individual all the way up to a community, a system, policy, and it's so you're, it's with the hopes that you become aware of how the implications one has to the other and how they all intersect and interconnect. And, and that really helped me. And I, I, I kind of made the realization with um, decolonization and it's the same powers in a domestic violence relationship, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just power and control. And um, so uh, the program, uh, the social work program at UOG is a generalist social work practice uh, program and it's to educate us on all levels of social work micro individuals all the way up to macro like policy systemic issues and it's with the hopes that we'd understand each of those levels of social work as well as the implications it has on each other and so you know like how policy affects the individual um, how the individual's needs could be addressed with the removal of a policy or uh, the implementation of a policy and um, that really helped me to see the injustices in colonization and our history of colonization and how difficult it is to decolonize and I was able to like and I'm not the first person to say this I forgot who the author is but she she like put it beautifully and she paralleled it to um, 
uh, domestic violence uh, relationship and how the same powers that be in uh, an administering power and its territory is the same power that's in a, a, a violent relationship. And so that really kind of got my mind kind of working and I started being, you know, it kind of made me start being more critical of things, you know, regardless of how like trivial I think it may seem, you know, if I were to look a little deeper, I can see the kind of power structure right. and relationship. But <clears throat> as far as social work, you know, like it saddens me because a lot of the work that a lot of the approaches that social workers use while they're good, you know, and um, it kind of provides some type of um, structure or framework, it's all evidence-based. But who is the evidence? You know, it's it's not us, you know. Of course, it could because it wasn't created by us. Um, so that was one of the things that kind of, uh, you know, as being an unincorporated territory, you know, our uh, educational system and the same with our services, you know, it's very... Um, western based western evidence based and a lot of like the stats and numbers regarding mental health are completely opposite of the numbers and figures in the united states yet we're using the same approach to treat because it's evidence based their evidence on the people living here and i don't know i i, I was just amazed to see the the numbers of mental and behavioral health issues in Guam and the age, you know, like the difference in age from Guam and the United States, the difference in gender from Guam to the United States. And, and um, I don't know. And ultimately it, it just, I feel like these are some of the most um, marginalized people in our society. And when kind of learning more about their context and their background, I learned that a lot of their diagnoses and what they're being medicated for is a product of something else, you know, that could be addressed, but instead is being band-aided with like medication. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, we, we teach them, we have a strengths-based perspective in social, or that's one of the approaches, one of the perspectives in social work, but it's one of the ones most commonly used because it's beautiful, you know? It's like, yes, it's important to look at uh, individual's issues, a community's issues, uh, whatever it is, you know, it's all the same. It's important to look at the issues because it shows us where we need to work, what we need to work on. But it's even more important to look at the, their strengths, their capabilities, so we can use those strengths and capabilities to address their needs and their issues. Yeah. And so we're being taught this, I see this on a daily, you know, uh, to some of Guam's most marginalized people. And it just saddens me that we cannot see it or that we are not yet at a place where many can see how it's the same thing with our relationship with the US. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, I can't do this, you know, I can't do that, but we need to start looking at our strengths. We need to start looking at our capabilities. And okay, we are constantly talking about our needs, but now we need to start talking about 
how we can use our strengths and capabilities to address those needs. Mm. <clears throat> but um, uh, yeah, so what did that author I was talking about? She she paralleled colonization, and I believe she was from India. She like call it, she paralleled her, like colonization with an abusive relationship, and going off of that kind of um, analogy, you know, it's like if would you tell an abuse you know a victim of abuse would you tell like say your cousin is being abused by her boyfriend would you tell her like and we all know that uh in a domestic violence relationships oftentimes the abuser kind of uh assumes the control over their finances over their homes over all of these things it's a way to control the power in the relationship so if we were to see Guam as the victim of abuse, would you tell that woman or man, just just do it because what else are you gonna do? You know, like just suck it up because, you know, who's gonna, you, you won't have money to pay the car, you won't, you know, you're gonna be homeless or whatever. Are you gonna, are you just gonna tell, are you gonna tell the individual who is now have, has mental health issues because of her abuse, are you just gonna tell her to remain silence and to kind of suck up the shitty relationship season? Or are you gonna say like, no, you're beautiful, you're hardworking, you have, like yeah, you did all of, you You raised two kids and graduated at GCC, you know, like you can do this, you know, like, you know, what I'm saying is it's all the same, you know, like the the force and the power it's all the same, and just as we would be able to help a victim of abuse out of a relationship, out of an abusive relationship, we can do the same with uh, Guam, you know? Nice. Yeah. That's beautiful. So, like, at the macro level, the mm -hmm. same systems of oppression mm -hmm. and uh, abuse, but also um, acknowledging strengths mm -hmm. can be applied to Guam as, mm -hmm. a, as a whole, as a community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, what are some of the strengths that you see in Guam mm -hmm. and our and our people mm -hmm. um, that might help us to overcome oppression and uh, abuse? Oh man, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, I think like I've had like a grieving process, you know, with the uh, learning of the injustices the Chamorro people have faced as far as like colonization, and I was I did go through like the anger, but. At the place I'm at, and and I think this is maybe it's a sign of like maturity or age or whatever or experience, but I'm starting to see uh, kind of the purpose in like customs and values, and like I was like I'll use my I don't know like uh, like with Chamorro customs for instance, you know like I've always learned like. I, my and I'm only speaking for myself. Like my understanding of Tintuli was like an envelope you give to your like someone at a birthday party, you know. So that was my understanding of Tintuli, and then I see it everywhere. Like all these uh, Chamorro values, Tintuli or whatever, and I'm like, wow, is it that big? Just like giving money, you know? Like that was very immature and naive of me to think. But when really understanding the purpose of that and the birth of that, it's it's like really beautiful, you know. And it really is about reciprocity and. It hasn't always been in the form of money, you know, and and um, I think and I see that like with a lot of like the customs, like as far as like funerals, you know, like my grandma passed away last month and 
I was just I, I was as you know now that I'm being able to like uh, being more critical and analytical of things and appreciative most importantly I'm seeing like the beauty and some of the customs that we do you know like I don't know I was just taken aback at how like uh, they let the main you know like the main siblings grieve and then the first cousins kind of do all the runarounds and you know everyone has like a job and a role yeah so I think that we have so many strengths and one of those is that we are very giving hardworking people you know like not just Jamores but everyone else who's called to Guam home I think and we all have like a, you know we're all like uh, all of our values and our perspectives are all collectivist mm-hmm. kind of uh, frameworks you know and it is those things like the like the reciprocity and like uh, the helping of others you know that kind of gets us out of bad situations and we do it on an individual basis we do it on a family basis a community basis you know we just need to all realize that we all do it we're all capable of doing it and we just need to do it all together you know but I don't think it's it's definitely not going out and trying to learn something new it's kind of sitting back and reflecting and going back and seeing what was done and how to apply it into today's society you know nice I don't know cool. if I answered your question, but no, no, that, was, that was beautiful. <laughs> I'm also very cold, so it might sound like I'm shivering. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> man. You know who I miss uh, on the podcast is uh, Elian Guerrero. Mm-hmm. My sister listened to the podcast for the first time um, just today and yesterday, mm-hmm. and um, when it came to the second episode, she was like, "Who is the guy speaking? Uh, he sounds mm-hmm. kind of creepy." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "That's Elian Guerrero, man." Like, <laughs> He, yeah, I don't know. Anti-creepy. He he sounds suave, but I guess <laughs> you know, suave. without the context, I guess maybe mm-hmm. could come across as mm-hmm. a little creepy. But um, you said you said something about policies mm-hmm. and also um, uh, being disheartened, and mm-hmm. um, you know these systems of oppression and abuse. And uh, a shout out to uh, Andrew Roberto. He was a um, I think he was an English grad. But he's, his family is from Saipan, and he just shared uh, uh, this article from the Marianas Variety that was just published today. Uh, Ninth Circuit, NMI voting restriction violates U.S. Constitution. Oh, yeah. Right. Did you see that? Or I skimmed it. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I certainly don't know the intricacies of um, the, the laws in the CNMI, but mm-hmm. from what I've gathered, the gist of it is that uh, – um, a man, John Davis, has argued that uh, um, restricting voting rights to uh, citizens of the Northern Marianas um, who are uh, cl- classified by their heritage mm. and their, their ties to the Northern Marianas, um, that's against the U.S. Constitution. Mm. And obviously uh, with Becca Garrison, we've been talking a lot about settler uh, colonialism and all of these things. And I'm wondering, Miguel, if you could uh, say... Uh, explain a, a few of the intricacies. Okay, yeah. Let me finish this real fast. Yeah. Right He's uh, typing away. <laughs> but um. All right. Dispense it. And so, the it's very interesting because, in terms of voting rights cases, at the last uh, sort of hearing, uh, hearing about the Davis case here on Guam, there was a little bit of a joke between the attorneys and the judge, Justice Tidinko Gatewood, because. In the discussion, there was references to three different 
Davis voting cases, one of them in the United States, one of them in Saipan, and then, of course, Dave or Arnold Dave Davis on Guam. And so, you know, people out in the Pacific, it sucks for us with our Davis cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I was, uh, I was very, I was not particularly surprised at that sort of thing because um, when you, when you sort of, if you step back for a second, because we always have to remember that here in Guam or in the CNMI, there are ways that we see the world. And oftentimes, even just the way that we see the United States is nothing like the way the United States is. And so we, what we may value here, what we may feel is very important, may have no meaning there, may be sort of off, completely off the radar there. And so we, for example, for, as Chamorros, as indigenous people in the Marianas, may feel like we are indigenous people, we should have certain rights here, there should be like a, a, a connection that we have to the land, and sort of the struggle for self-determination, for decolonization is very much animated by our feelings that we have rights and we have been denied those things in the past, and so we need to have some sort of symbolic sort of movement to reassert ourselves in the world. But the problem is that the United States really doesn't care about those things. The United States really cared about Iraqi self-determination when there was a bunch of oil there and when the Bush administration wanted to remake the world in, based on the project for the new American century. And when you look at other places, the United States, for example, cares about decolonization if it's in their interests, if it attacks a political rival or something. But they don't care about it if it affects their military basing policies, if it affects their bottom line, all sorts of stuff like that. And so looking then at the Davis case in the CNMI, we have to remember that, so this is something where the CNMI has cre- had created a covenant with the United States, which, which, which outlaw, outlined sort of their relationship to each other, what they received from the United States, what the, United St- what the CNMI receives from the United States, what the United States receives from the CNMI, and so on. And so in that, we have uh, discussions about um, what privileges, like what programs the CNMI can get access to, what uh, options the U.S. has for lands in the CNMI, such as Tinian, um, for its military activities. Now, this is something which, has, which came up before around the issue of free association, what free association looks like. Because the CNMI has a form of free association but it's a very dangerous form because basically the CNMI in the United States started off in a way where they were negotiating with each other, but the agreement that they made basically means now that the CNMI doesn't have the power to negotiate with the United States anymore because they accepted a place within the United States. Now, this is very different than Guam because Guam is a possession of the United States. So we don't even have an agreement that was ever made with the United States that we can use, which is why our struggle for this is so amorphous and so difficult at times, because we don't have a guiding document. We talk about the United Nations right on rights of, you know, for the Declaration of Rights for Indigenous People. We talk about the UN Charter, and people in the United States have no idea what we're talking about and don't really care. Now, the CNMI is a little bit different, but because of the, the, the deal that they made with the United States, they basically lost sovereignty. Um, other Micronesian places, other places such as Palau, FSM, the Marshalls, decided to retain sovereignty while still making deals with the United States. And so 
Because of this issue, though, right, the issue of rights and laws in the CNMI is part of the U.S. federal court. Now, we don't really see that for Palau, right, or the Marshall Islands or the FSM. If there's issues there, it doesn't go to the United States Supreme Court. But here is the problem, is that the issue in the Davis case there is similar to the one here. It's about whether uh, elections there or a vote should be open to everybody who lives there or if it should be only to a select group of people. Because the covenant and the and basic, you know, the CNMI constitution, all these things, identify that there are those who are NMD, Northern Marianas descent. And so they are the ones that can own land. If you are non-NMD, if you don't have a percentage of NMD in you, then you cannot own land there. You can only lease it. And so um, in the past, I mean, that's the main privilege now, left to people who are NMD. Um, but the issue, though, is if there's ever like a vote on changing the covenant and changing the constitution, it should only be restricted to those who are Northern Marianas descent, especially in terms of the land alienation clause, which makes it that only they can own land. But people uh, are challenging that and saying that me as a U.S. citizen, I should be able to vote in that. There shouldn't be any reason that my voting rights are restricted. And so we come to the same point that we are in the Davis case here on Guam. This is not a vote for your mayor or your senator or your president. This is a vote for something which involves a particular group of people and the United States shouldn't have anything to do with it except to support it. But the U.S. court system doesn't care about those things. And so the U.S. The US Supreme Court system, for example, the Ninth Circuit Court, which Guam and the CNMI fall under, had a reputation for a long time for being very liberal. And it is not particularly liberal anymore. Um, and in fact, in general, when you look at the US court system, I was, I was talking to Julian Uggen about this a little while ago. If you look at the US court system, there is a period um, where courts were finding things in favor of those who were like oppressed where they were kind of finding things in favor of women, of minorities, and in favor of Native Americans. And their rights, their sovereign rights, their territorial rights. But that era is done. Now, when you look at case law, case, uh, courts tend to find against Native Americans and find in favor of taking away their, their uh, tribal rights. Um, and so, unfortunately, then this extends now to the way that the the courts see the Davis cases in the Marianas, is that they're not looking at us and saying, you know what, here's a, here's a couple group of people that have gotten screwed over, that kind of have their own histories, their own cultures. You know, we should support them. We shouldn't kind of use the fact that we are the most powerful country in the world to t continue to take advantage of them. Nope, the courts say, oh my goodness, look at this. The Constitution is so special and nice. And these people are violating the Constitution. Oh no! And so, it's a it's a tough spot now for me personally. When I look at it, it's kind of like the people in the CNMI should have learned the lesson that the other people in Micronesia learned. And so, when the negotiations with the Trust Territory and the State Department happened, the other islands looked at Guam, and they looked at Hawaii. And they basically said, 
we do not want to end up like the Hawaiians and the Chamorros in Guam. They said Native Hawaiians are not in charge anymore. Native Hawaiians are dispossessed. They're, they're, now there's even if you, for every one rich Native Hawaiian, there's like 100 low-income Native Hawaiians. Like, look at what happened to them. They lost their land. Look at the Chamorros in Guam. You know, they're being pushed out. They're, you know, all these others are people are coming in. Japanese people own everything now. And so they looked at it and said, basically, we want a good relationship with the United States, but we do not want the United States to take over. We want to be able to keep ourselves, you know, at a distance so that we don't get overwhelmed. Now, the CNMI had a different approach. The CNMI looked at Guam and said, we want more of that. They said, Guam is so Americanized. Guam is awesome. Guam has air conditioning. Guam has malls. Guam has, like, like cars everywhere. People speak English. People watch TV. They got cable TV. The people in the CNMI looked at Guam and were and really wanted to be like Guam but better. And so the covenant that they negotiated was something which was supposed to give them what Guam had, a close connection to the United States, access to the United States, but also then a measure of control over things so that they could try to protect themselves if necessary. Now, eventually, as federalization happened, in which the CNMI lost most vestiges of its sort of sovereignty. Um, and so what we see now is really like uh, really the result of this, where the CNMI had the opportunity to kind of negoti negotiate something to protect itself but, uh, and so even given the positions that we're in now, it is instructive to look at the example of the CNMI when we're talking about independent statehood and free association. Looking to their example and thinking that if we were engaged in a process of negotiation over Guam's future with the United States, the same sort of deal would come. I mean, in the past, that's what Commonwealth was. Commonwealth was pretty similar to the CNMI and what they got with the covenant. And so the United States will say, you guys want independence, right? Well, we really like you guys now. And we really like your Chamorro, is that how you say your name? Or is it Chumaru? Is it, it sounds like a Pokemon my son caught yesterday in the park, whatever you guys are. But we, w we don't want to lose you now. We want to offer you a close, a better deal, a close relationship. We want to offer you like Commonwealth or something like that. But we have to be careful because we're negotiating with the United States and we may end up in that same position where we negotiate ourselves into a position where it's favorable for the moment, where we're like, oh, we're going to get this money, we're going to get this, uh, with this close affinity, this is awesome. But in the long run, we have negotiated ourselves out of our future. And so for me, looking at this kind of, those are some of my thoughts on sort of the, the other Davis case. When I read that, I was uh, I was infuriated and saddened too. Yeah, so my heart goes out to the CNMI. Um, but again, um, this is something that hopefully we can learn on if we're given the chance. And um, I'm I'm curious about the uh, the the effect this might have on the ruling locally that we're waiting on uh, for our plebiscite. So I guess we'll see where that goes. It's interesting because, um, you know, it is the time of year that people spend with their families and think more about their families. But then, as you said, people are always supposed to spend time with their families. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of weird. But um, 
Uh, this December is the anniversary every year of the invasion of Guam by the Japanese. And so, you know, looking into the future on the, on the 5th of January, um, I have no idea when this is coming out, but if it comes out before then. Um, looking, looking to that point, on the 5th of January, we're supposed to have a teach-in. Independent Guahan will have a teach-in which focuses on war reparations. Because the, the news right now is that, of course, um, for the first time ever, the, the, the Congress has passed war reparations for Chamorros. The catch is, as, as was reported in the media, but many people missed that as they clicked the share button, is that, is that it is reparations which comes from money which was already earmarked for Guam. Yeah. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've gotten into a lot of tense and emotional discussions with people about this. Because um, as one woman told me, it doesn't matter where the money comes from, just give the elders the recognition. And my response was, but recognition is all about the symbolism. If you just want money, then just give people money. Like, but if you ask elders, are they going to say it's about money? Most will say it's not about money. I mean, they, they will say that, but of course they would appreciate the money. But if you're talking about recognition, it is all about the intent. It is all about how you carry it out. It's not about like you recognize somebody, but you actually hate them or you want to screw them over. Like if, if that's the purpose of this form of, of restitution, if that's the purpose of this form of reparation, then it's stupid and it's pointless that we recognize you and we will compensate you and we have decided that the money that we were going to give you anyways, we will use that to compensate you. That is an affront to the very idea because, I mean, um, I read, a, I used to read a lot of Jacques Derrida and he would always talk about these sorts of things as being just so fundamentally human because they are impossible things. Because animals live in a world where everything kind of makes sense, where there's not a lot of ifs, ands, or buts. There's not a lot of crises of identity, at least from what we see. We don't know. Perhaps dogs and cats really do have existential angst. Who knows? But for humans, we engage in all of these things which are very human and very frustrating, sometimes just divinely enriching, though, and beautiful, but impossible. And one of those things is, is justice. One of those things is reparations. When you are giving reparations, it is about justice, and justice is, is impossible. There's no, no matter, what, no matter what a society creates in terms of identifying that if you do this crime, justice is you serving this year, these many years, there's, there's nothing actually real to that. It's just a choice which judges make or lawmakers make. Does it really fix the wrong? Does it really solve the, solve the problem? Does it really deal with the trauma which was inflicted by that? No, it doesn't. So humans have all these games, all of these sort of activities where we try to deal with these impossible things in our lives. And reparations, apologies, these are some of them, right? And so if we think about this form of reparation, this form of recognition, we have to really connect to even the, the 1993 Native Hawaiian apology that the US Congress and the US government made, which, uh, which was at that point, that was the 100-year anniversary of the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. 
and it was pushed through and it was it was powerful in a way but in the years since native hawaiians have found that it doesn't mean anything and that the supreme court even decided several years ago that the apology was meant to be conciliatory was meant to be sort of uh wishful was meant to be sort of um it was one of those things where it was kind of like sorry but not really sorry because Native Hawaiians have tried to use that, and the Native Hawaiians and the Hawaiian government, to make a distinction, the, st the state government, have tried to use that in order to get sort of more, more things out of the United States. And what they have found is that courts continually, con uh, excuse me, what they have found is that courts continually say that it is not a real apology. It's not meant to affect law. It's not meant to affect reality. It's just meant to make you feel better about something that mm. that no one plans to do anything about. <laughs> yeah. And so we have to then think about it in relation to that, like apologies to Native Americans. I mean, there's real... So, but what I said about sort of justice and reparations, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything. It just means, though, that the discussions about what is appropriate or what is the perfect form of it just aren't won't take you anywhere because... You can always, you will always, as Derrida says, you will always give too little or you will always give too much when trying to sort of make up for something. And so the problem is, if you give too little, then basically you don't really fix anything. You don't repair anything because you basically say, I am only doing this. And if you think about it, these are like human relationships too, right? If you hurt somebody, and you apologize to the point, if you only apologize to the point where your ego remains intact, then the other person usually feels really bad, right? Like, oh man, you don't really care about me because this is not a real apology. But if you apologize m for more, more than you really want to, it can end up making you feel pain, right? And so that's always the struggle is that those in power want to recognize and apologize and repair and create restitution, deal with trauma in a marginal way so that it doesn't cost much. Whatever can be done which doesn't affect anything. That's why you may or may not know the, the U.S. Congress at one point apologized for slavery, but it was very clear in the apology that it is not meant to affect reality. <laughs> it is not meant to actually cause anything to happen but and so but if you if you give too much then you create resentment and you and you basically create more other different types of problems and that's always the issue with this sort of thing yeah. that's interesting um when you think about the election and how it's gone um i forgot what i was listening to or what i may have been watching but they were talking about how um, you know having a, a black president for two terms has created this angst in um, uh, middle to lower class uh, white Americans, and so what do we get? Trump. So yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like an overcompensation for um, uh, eight years of a liberal, perhaps, or progressive maybe, um, uh, surface uh, politics. So, God, 2017, we'll see. That's all I can say. Okay, so, but you were saying um, the, the war reparations teach in January 5th, yes, 6 o'clock. Yes, 6, 6 p.m. In, in UOG HSS 106. 
Come early, right? Come early. And if you want to learn, oh, yes, the last one was totally packed. We'll, we'll see if this one is packed, but it should be well attended because this issue is out there right now, and it's a very emotional issue, and so we'll be covering some of the history and some of the issues involved in it. And Victoria Leon Guerrero um, from the Independence Task Force will also be sort of talking about it. It might it might be a little um, it might be a little unrelated, so you can maybe edit this out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I remember having a conversation like a few months ago about um, with my mom about my grandpa who passed away a few years ago, and he was a teenager during uh, the Japanese occupation and uh, World War Two, and he lo- and he also lost uh, a brother in Pearl Harbor. He lost a brother in uh, the massacre at Tinta. And, um, you know, we kind of, we so we had a nice discussion because I feel like um, my grandpa has always, you know, is always remembered as having served in the army. And the one of the, the images used in like his uh, obituary or uh, anything really that we kind of draw to is his picture of when he was in the army and you know and we looking back kind of see that as his identity and when talking with my mom a little bit deeper we kind of later realized that you could kind of have uh, kind of wants and needs for decolonization without kind of um, uh, dismissing the injustices the Chamorro people face during the occupation of Guam. And it was very interesting, and it was I think it was a breakthrough not only for me, but for her, too, and kind of reflecting, and she kind of came to peace because my grandpa served in, you know, like he served in the Army. He traveled, you know, to Europe, to the United States. He lived through the occupation, and it was really rough, you know, and I know you guys spoke earlier about, uh, like, symbolic reparations and <clears throat> and reparations and... Really, there really isn't. A, you could. You. It, there really isn't anything you could do to kind of, uh, pr- you know, bring justice to that that era and that period of uh, their their life. But um, I think um, it would be an injustice to kind of. I don't know. Like maybe you can edit this out. But it would be an injustice to kind of not pursue anything or you know to not kind of um pursue decolonization especially after such a tragic time in their history and the history of guam which was not too long ago which is just like two generations ago for me and yeah <clears throat> but um yeah i'm still trying to grasp what you what you were saying mm-hmm. so uh for you uh like <laughs> decolonization um is uh, is a way of uh, uh, truly and actually commemorating our our it is. that that generation of survivors. I I yeah. I, I really believe that. Nice. And my grandpa and I was trying to tell my mom because it it really saddens me that his legacy is that he served a term in the army. Yeah. And that is not his legacy. You know, I, he is like what he's my standard of like what a man should be. You know, like right. he is what I aspire to be like and I don't think that gives him justice is for that to be his uh, legacy 
and he was very political over and you know and I don't think everyone knew how political he was because you know like uh, my mom was born in the 60s like mid 60s and he and he purposefully taught she and all of his her siblings Chamorro only mm-hmm. so they went through kind of being like chastised at school for not speaking English well or for having an accent and for getting in trouble by their teachers and whatnot but he kept nurturing that and he was very much aware of the kind of uh, abuses they were facing you know for speaking their native tongue and and I was trying to explain to my mom that that was like a very political statement you know it was very political action and and you know and then she started to remember you know she started to reflect too and she always he was he always brought attention to yes I'm very thankful and grateful for the US liberating us from Japan during that time but he was also very critical and analytical of like their occupation of their uh, colonization as well and he he drew a lot of you know he was able to see a lot of the injustices with um high militarization of the island and kind of uh, the displacing of the displacement of families for military purposes and how we're true you know we're second-class citizens with who don't have the right to vote for president and so kind of having a conversation about my grandpa's legacy kind of helped my mom kind of recognize just how political my grandpa was and then at the end of that long conversation, it was like we talked for like two hours and I even like recorded it, you know, because it was, it was nice, you know. And afterwards, I was like, okay, well, if Grandpa was alive today, you know, we kind of talked more about some of his views and things on the United States, on the military, on Guam and, and everything. And he, he had a firm stand on matters and he had a firm um, grasp of his, his own values. And, and I asked her, like, if... Grandpa were still alive to this day and he was able to vote in the upcoming plebiscite, what would he choose? And then she said he would choose independence. And I was like, okay, so we have created his legacy to be the army man, you know, but we're kind of dismissing everything else and kind of how his pride and his tomorrowness, you know, and and I think this goes to show that you could survive the war in Guam, you could be a proud Chamorro, you could be thankful of the liberation of Guam, and you could acknowledge the pros and cons to our relationship with the United States and still want an independent Guam. You know, so it was, it was, a, it was a really nice conversation and we both kind of got to reflect and come to closure with certain things and I don't know, so I guess that's where I was going with uh, when, I, I don't know when I, heard uh, Senor Bavakwa kind of talk about the war reparations. It kind of just, I, the whole time I was just thinking about my grandpa. Yeah. And then even uh, just the other day, like my mom, she's always finding like these cool little things that from my family that they're, you know, they passed down. And she just gave me like two letters that my uncle, my grandpa's brother, who died in, at Pearl Harbor, like two letters he wrote to my great grandmother in Chamorro. And it's just beautiful, you know, like it's, yeah, it's it's just beautiful, man, and wow. <coughs> and yeah, yeah, I have a picture actually. <laughs> but yeah, that's, oh, nice. that's pretty much. I'd love it. to see that chat. too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to read. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that, man. Um, 
my father or my sorry well my dad was a mm-hmm. veteran is a veteran mm-hmm. uh my grandfather my grandfather uh did have a um this army legacy mm-hmm. that uh, i think um my family members probably painted up and mm-hmm. uh romanticized mm-hmm. um but yeah i'm glad you said that because i think there is there's a tendency to uh paint this one this one-sided perspective of uh um our 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 figures mm-hmm. our role models are my uncle mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. thank you and also interestingly that's uh that's the note that i ended on on my thesis today uh while working on that is uh, how do we reconcile uh chamorroness and a uh, quest for decolonization with uh um perhaps someone's role in in the military or uh yeah, in the tourism industry, like they're out there working to provide for themselves or their families. We don't know what their situations are, but who's to say that, you know, they won't be able to do those things and still pursue decolonization. So how do we reconcile that? Um, that's it for us here. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Um, putting out good intentions, uh, looking for positivity in the, in the upcoming year. So thank you, guys. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinengainya Independent Guahan. Harabai ina fanmatakna yaman tomorrow. Pawatituli tap ti idiratota komo unnashon gihilutano. Gini minekut niha yamanyanata. Jani gwina zata nui famagum tamotna. Ina keke fanmanungo. Jan na keke fanetun todu itato siha. Nimanyasaga gi ininatano. Pawatanat let fetna ida guahan. Ni todu inina senyata. Kosiki senyata fanlatla maulik motna. Fanatsu. Hita latmun.